Are you ready for the ultimate true crime experience? Get ready to dive deep into the world of mystery and justice. Introducing Without Warning Podcast. On this episode, I have Daryl Robertson, who is a former homicide Houston police officer who was the expert witness in Jonathan Cruz's case. Daryl will give you his background in a second, but I will say that I worked with Daryl as my secret weapon. I told nobody about him after I met him and worked with him for a while. It was an eight-year process. He is humble. His integrity, no one can touch. He is a truth seeker, which is very, very important to me and the Cruz family to find out what happened. I cannot say enough good things about Daryl. I believe he won the case for us by explaining to the jury the evidence in a way that could be comprehended by a layperson. Daryl is going to go through the case and his thoughts about law enforcement and the criminal justice system. Danielle will be asking the questions and joining us on this episode. Danielle? Daryl, it is great to be in your presence again. Can you believe it's almost been a year since we were at the Cruz trial? It, it seems like yesterday, honestly, but yeah, it is, it's good to see both of you again. Um, uh, I, it was a, a very much of a highlight for my, my career working with both of you. Aww. So Daryl, can you tell the listeners just a little bit about your background? Born in South Louisiana, I come from a long line uh, of uh, people in law enforcement. My son is now the fifth generation. Uh, my family uh, was my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, my mother, and two brothers were all in law enforcement. Um, and now my son is with the Houston Police Department. Uh, I retired uh, from the Houston Police Department in 2012. Uh, during my time at the Houston Police Department, I spent 13 years uh, as a homicide detective working at the Houston Police Department. As you can imagine, you know, uh, one of the largest cities in the United States. It's very experiential and very rich in, in volume of cases and, uh, and sometimes intensity and complexity of homicides that I worked. Uh, I ended my law enforcement career after moving to, to Durango, Colorado. I continued it actually with the Durango Police Department, and I was in charge of uh, eventually of the uh, detective unit here. Uh, during the course of my time here at Durango Police Department, um, and I decided that uh, I wanted to know how many homicide cases actually worked, because one of the qualifying, one of the qualifiers was to have supervised or worked in investigations for the position that I was competing for. And um, so I contacted uh, the Houston Police Department, an analyst, and I asked him if he could run analyt analytics on my cases that I worked. And I was um, actually kind of uh, shocked um, that I, I was primary on about 103 to 108 homicides. But I had assisted in the right around 300 homicides. So at one, um, and I, I, I was surprised, and I wasn't surprised because uh, you're so busy uh, in that job in a city like that that uh, things get blurry. You become a little sleep deprived. Um, call out schedules and court appearances become 
just daily the daily routine and so i was um surprised i guess that i had actually worked that many cases after moving to durango colorado i decided that um law, I, I was i was kind of um had i had reached my zenith in my career and i i went ahead and retired from law enforcement altogether and uh at that point i was approached by a uh a former coworker at the Durango Police Department who had become a private investigator who interested me in expert witness consulting. And that is how I ended up becoming involved in the Cruz case. I was looking for an expert witness that had the homicide background. And you and I spoke on the phone. I knew immediately that we would work well together because you weren't someone who was going to give me the information I wanted. You were someone who was going to look at the case and tell me what happened. You weren't going to taint it to our side. You weren't a hired gun. You were actually our secret weapon because you were so honest and ethical. Yeah, you know, one of the things that when I got into uh, expert witness consulting is I had to, um, I turned away um, the bulk of the cases that were offered to me. Uh, Many of them were, uh, you know, honestly, they were guilty clients that were looking for the best deal. And their attorney was uh, attempting to do that. And I wasn't interested in that. I I was interested in where either justice needed to prevail or justice had failed. And, uh, my very first case that I did expert witness consulting in was in El Paso County, Colorado, Colorado Springs, in a homicide there. And um, and the uh, the attorney that hired me there asked me the question, why why are you, you know, I want to know why you're accepting this case. And I told her, just like I told you, and I told uh, Tom Shaw, the attorney in the Cruz case, I said, because I believed in it. I believe that there was a, it was a, a real truth versus um, it was where truth needed to prevail. And that's the cases I wanted to work. And uh, I didn't want to work um, scale of justice cases where we're trying to get the best deal. The reason I accepted the Cruz case after discussion with you was for the very same reason. I felt like um, you were in search of the truth and, and for justice for the Cruz family. And I that became contagious, and that's exactly what I wanted for them. I really appreciated the approach that you took on your case. You wanted all the information. You went through it. You asked a lot of questions. We were able to work hand-in-hand hand on getting the information, and I think I probably talked to you Numerous times, it's hard to count because I would find out something and call you or I'd ask you a question. And I believe a lot of questions came down to why is this going on? Why isn't the the police involved in trying to fix what they wronged? Well, for, you know, one of the things I, I was once young and, and I was once naive, even as a young cop, um, I was idealistic. I believed that we, I believed as I believed in myself, I was out. Most of us were out to do the right thing. Most of us were ethical. Most of us were uh, just like uh, the, the families of crime victims and crime victims themselves, that we were 
out for good, at literally a good versus evil. And uh, as when I became involved in expert witness consulting, um, it occurred to me that not all police departments, not all cultures of police departments are the same. And um, departments many times suffer, uh, sometimes generationally, from um, poor leadership, from uh, uh, poor policy, for and but mainly what I find is uh, a lack of accountability. Um, even even departments that lack resources uh, can be very be very ethical and accountable, but uh, resources certainly help uh, help with investigations. But and it occurred to me at, at the very beginning of the Cruz case, what I saw was um, what seemed to be almost an intentional lack of interest that developed early on, and I said, "There's a reason for that. There, that that's not just accidental." And uh, and you know we really don't still don't have all the answers for why there was that developed very swiftly developed lack of interest, but you know we have our suspicions, and um, I, it it was both very it's saddening honestly coming from a generational police family, so I felt like I gave it my all in the Houston Police Department. I was very I'm very proud of my my time in the Houston Police Department and especially my time in the uh, homicide division, it was a very professional, very well-managed, very ethical uh, homicide division. I was very, very disappointed uh, with what I was seeing. And we had to wade through this disappointment, wade through a lack of information and deal with only information we got to reach uh, some sort of answer to that would give us some semblance of justice. I had, you know, friends of mine, uh, a friend of mine who's an attorney said, um, I never promised people justice. I just promised them a decision. And that's the, um, cause justice is individual. Um, individuals have different ideas of what justice is, but, uh, the sad part about it is we could not even get a decision whether from the police department, the prosecutor's office, not even the scientific sources, those responsible for the scientific discoveries in this case. And um, that just made me uh, more driven to um, find out what would happen to Jonathan. Daryl, what was your first impressions of the Cruz case when it was presented to you? Well, my first impression of the Cruz case, and obviously it's um, after uh, discussing the case with Sheila, um, and the attorney my uh, and and reviewing whatever what little evidence that they were willing to give up um interestingly enough they 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 gave up enough evidence that my first impression was uh, this young man was murdered uh, that was i came to a conclusion of that very early on um there were several things i'm sure we'll talk about the uh, the reasons for that but uh, the the physical evidence alone without hearing anyone's testimony, any depositions or anything, the physical evidence alone uh, showed me uh, that this young man did not kill himself and that he was murdered. And, um, and that, that basically uh, amplified my energy uh, to, to 
find out what happened to him. Daryl, as a former homicide detective or even just former being former law enforcement, in your opinion, what do you feel the Capel Police Department could have done differently in their investigation? What they could have done different, I guess, sadly, is we don't know a lot about what they did. Uh, however, having a systematic a systematic um, policy and, and procedure for working homicides uh, would have could have um, prevented uh, the inactivity. Um, Whatever I feel like that they were distracted. They had to, there's some reason that they diverted their attention uh, away from this and didn't want to uh, uh, spend the resources, the time. I think one of the things with with uh, homicide investigation is um, is two things: accountability and quality control. So accountability is that a homicide occurs. Uh, now, understandably, the Houston Police Department, we were much very large. We had over 100, well over 100 people just in homicide division alone. Uh, so there was a very, very uh, well adhered to procedure. Homicide came in, an in- initial assessment was made from the time the phone call came in, whether it was from patrol or not. So, and then that case would be assigned to investigators. It would be the uh, that squad's lieutenant would review it. He would he would give his opinion, call his investigators in. He would look for that case to come back. He would reread it. He would get other investigators involved. Uh, the more you know, people people won't think that the uh, it, unlike the old adage, uh, "too many cooks in the kitchen." Homicide investigation is just the opposite. The more homicide, the more investigators you have in a homicide, the more accountability you got. You have other eyes and other ears, and you have other people to look over these work, look over the work. When I used to work with my partner, uh, my partner would give me the statements that he had taken. I would many times be working the physical evidence aspect of it, and the first thing I did was look to see does the physical evidence match the 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 um, the statements of the witnesses and the, or the, even the confession of the of a suspect uh, and vice versa. He would see if the statements that were given him matched or if my physical evidence matched his statements as well. So I think having a, a, a systematic procedure of accountability, case management is so important. And it's one of the first things overlooked by especially small departments who have limited budgets. I don't think a limited budget was an issue for the Coppell Police Department. Uh, this is a relatively affluent community, um, and this has a very well-funded police department. So um, I don't think that there's any excuse for not having uh, a, a good level of accountability, especially for a homicide in a, in a community such as Coppell. Daryl, can you explain what evidence led you to come to the conclusion that you eventually arrived at that Jonathan was killed? So in this case with Jonathan Cruz, uh, the very first uh, thing that uh, caught my that caught my eye was the um, the gunshot entry wound that he had. Um, I have attended a lot of autopsies uh, as uh, a part of uh, my homicide investigations in the Houston Police Department. 
And I learned a lot about pattern wound injuries. Part of pattern wound injuries um, is, you know, when you think about it is uh, if, if you press uh, the end of a barrel of a gun and against uh, human skin and you pull the trigger, uh, the heat, the sudden motion of the weapon, uh, uh, the jerking of the weapon and everything, it actually causes what we refer to as an abraded stamp. We call it a, a muzzle stamp to where the image of the muzzle of the weapon is to almost near almost tattooed onto the skin. And um, one of the photographs of uh, the wound that killed Jonathan uh, one, was a one from the uh, Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office. Uh, she, once it was cleaned up and photographed, I recognized it instantly as as a as a muzzle stamp. And one of the reasons I recognized it was it was a muzzle stamp of a of a weapon of the type and caliber that uh, type and that and brand that I own, and it looked just like it. And I, I literally ran upstairs. Uh, I think I was talking to Sheila at this time. I ran upstairs, went and got the weapon. I'm like, he was shot with a Sig Sauer, a Sig Arms weapon. What that that muzzle stamp told me is it told me how that weapon was oriented. And in other words, uh, whether it was this, this, or this, this being the end of the barrel pressed up against the flesh. And it, um, it that instantly told me that... Um, that that weapon was not uh, used as a suicidal act. What if your partner developed 21 new identities or you discovered that your friend who helped you through the darkest times was actually a conniving con artist? Or what if you began seeing demons everywhere inhabiting people, including your son. What would you do? From Wondering, This Is Actually Happening is a podcast that brings you extraordinary true stories of life-changing events told by the people who lived them. In their newest season, you'll hear even more intimate first-person accounts of how regular people have overcome remarkable circumstances from the man who went to jail for 17 years for accidentally shooting the person who tried to save his life to one of the close friends of infamous scam artist Amanda Riley. These haunting accounts sound like Hollywood movies, but I assure you, this is actually happening. Follow This Is Actually Happening on Wondery App or wherever you get your podcast. And you can listen to This Is Actually Happening ad-free on Wondery Plus. Danielle. Can you explain, because the listeners can't see you go this, this, and this, can you explain maybe where that muzzle stamp, and this is what my talking is going to be edited, but explain maybe that it was at the two o'clock position is that okay, Sheila? To kind of yeah, it was. It's it, it was closer to two o'clock. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so the, maybe talk about it like that, so the listeners can visualize how you came to that. Yeah. So, so I was, when I 
I viewed the the, the muzzle stamp that I was discussing uh, uh, on Jonathan's chest, and it was it was on his chest, just left of midline. Midline is if you were is uh, if you have an imaginary line that runs from the, the forehead down between the eyes, down the middle of the mouth, the nose, the neck, right down the sternum, and so that's midline. Um, uh, and so, so one side is right, one side is left, obviously. So his entry wound uh, and muzzle uh, muzzle stamp corresponded in such a way that that it told me that the basically the person that shot Jonathan uh, was number one was not himself. It was number two. It was someone um, standing uh, immediately to his left as he lay in the bed. So then we had to go into the wound path. The the wound path is from the location of Jonathan's body, which in this case was the chest, the left side of the chest. And that bullet traversed across through the chest, uh, penetrating the the bottom of the heart and coming out uh, in his right lower back at an angle uh, and uh, going diagonally across the bed towards the foot of the bed, but striking the bed frame uh, on Jonathan's right side. So uh, that interested me because all I had to do at that point was determine uh, from the photographs and the police reports uh, where they recovered the bullet and backtrack it, back it through the, from, from the bed frame, through the, through the mattress and bedding, through backing it through the exit wound in Jonathan's back, through the wound path through Jonathan's chest and out. And that gave me the perfect location of the shooter. And it was standing next to the bed, holding the weapon, pressing it against uh, Jonathan's chest and pulling the trigger. Further uh, information that Sheila provided for me was gunshot residue uh, testing that was done. Um, also, that what came out of that was the knowledge of um, that Jonathan, the day prior to uh, him being killed, had literally seen a, a, a orthopedic doctor uh, for a shoulder injury to his right shoulder, and his range of motion was 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 seriously impaired, and the. Um, the gunshot residue in this case was that Jonathan, whom I believe uh, Brenda Lazaro at that time, Lazaro now Kelly said, had, uh, she said he shot himself. Um, I began to try to recreate that with my own uh, props and my own weapons. And um, knowing that he had had uh, that shoulder injury in trying to achieve that same angle because the gunshot residue, uh, uh, forensic photos of Jonathan laying in bed, his left arm was uh, off the bed, laying on top of uh, some Chinese food on a bedside table. Jonathan, pretty long arms, even a photograph. You could see his arms are really long. His gunshot residue was absolutely negative on his left hand. On his right hand, there was only five particles, I believe, of gunshot residue on his right hand. Uh, when I asked about the gunshot residue report on Brenda, Brenda Lazaro, it came back with just a tremendous amount on the hoodie she was wearing and on both of her hands. 
Um, so none of that made sense. You know, gun, gunshot residue is a tool. It doesn't conclude who did what, but it creates a story and a pattern. And the one thing is I realized if Jonathan was going to be able to achieve um, the range of motion to press the gun to his chest uh, to commit suicide, he would have had to have utilized his left hand to stabilize the weapon to reach that type of torsion to contort himself uh, in order to, to press that against his body and shoot himself. And it was impossible, really. Well, I have a question about that. Um, dealing with the police narrative that he used his thumb. For somebody who is a an expert in guns, does that sound a little overreaching? Yeah, it's it's a that's a pretty much an overreaching, overbaked story. The other thing is the, the physical evidence is that it was so uncharacteristic. Uh, Brenda Lazara had said in her statement to the police that um, he said he, that she, in her statement, she said that he was going to show her how much he loved her. It was interesting. He wouldn't even get out of bed to show her uh, because uh, he, he was clearly laying flat on his back in the bed uh, when he when he was shot. And um, uh, that just contradicted all common sense that it basically told me that's that was false. That story was false. Now that you said something interesting, common sense. That's what I keep saying in this case is use your common sense where the jury sure did, but I haven't seen the, the agencies use common sense. What is that about? Yeah, in this case, there's there certainly seems to have been a departure from common sense. Um, there's um, there's ample evidence at the at the very least uh, to show what the police need to charge someone with murder of Jonathan Cruz's probable cause. What is the most probable? Does the evidence fit this probability? The probable cause, and um, and you can use the you can link these pieces of evidence, his body position, the muzzle stamp, all these things come to a common conclusion. And the common conclusion is, is it doesn't say suicide. So at some point there was a departure from common sense. And it almost, to me, it's almost an intentional, um, a maliciousness to reinforce a suicide narrative of Jonathan. And um, and to me, there, that creates another motive, is who is pushing the suicide narrative and why? Daryl, so we just talked about Jonathan and how he had so little GSR and it was only five particles on the right hand. Can you explain the voluminous amount that Brenda had, where it was, and what that may indicate? Yeah, and th- it also brings up another uh, interesting part is... Um, Brenda, Brenda's uh, GSR was literally on both sides. Of her hood. I'm wearing a hoodie now. You called me one day and you said a lack of evidence is evidence. Lack, and what I meant by that was this. Um, if, if you find someone with a gunshot wound, let's say to their temple, their head, um, you, may, you, you, you know you're going to find uh, some gunshot residue at the gunshot entry wound. But if you find no 
uh, gunshot residue on the hand or the sleeve um, uh, or, or either one of the hands. The lack of that evidence should be suspicious that the the lack of that gunshot residue is evidence. Okay, so that's that's what I meant by that. The gunshot residue pattern is consistent with Brenda Lazaro firing the weapon and not Jonathan Cruz. Daryl, what is the most difficult hurdle an expert witness has to overcome? Not allowing your mind to to, to create a narrative that the evidence doesn't support. A lot of people will talk to you and say, well, this, this has happened, that happened, that happened. Don't you see it? Don't you see it? And I, I don't want to even talk to those. I don't even want to hear that. Just let me look. Let me look at the evidence. Um, rarely does, I, I think that's what I, I really enjoy about the physical evidence interpretation is, is it has no reason to lie to me. Um, but in some cases, expert witnesses are influenced by by either the the attorney that hires them or in law enforcement cases by their peers who have a some predetermined notion and so they go to build a case based on the notion as opposed to what the evidence supports Daryl what was the single most important thing you wanted to convey to the jury that Jonathan was murdered and he didn't kill himself um after reviewing all the evidence i i you know i think the uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't get, uh, I, I don't have an emotional stake in it, and I, I do my best to not have an emotional stake in cases. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's a mistake to emotionally connect when you're trying to search for the unbiased truth. Uh, I think I wanted them to know that um, that this young man did not kill himself; he was murdered. But Jonathan couldn't couldn't tell us with his voice that he didn't kill himself, that he was murdered. So um, he didn't interrupt me to give me a narrative, uh, but he spoke to me by the evidence uh, that was left for me to review in, in this case and come up with a determination that this young man was murdered. It sounds cliche that, you know, you know, in, in homicide as homicide detectives, we say, you know, we we speak for the dead. You know, man has always been the agent for which God is, you know, completes his will in, in humanity. And I think um, I, I just, I really wanted the truth to come out uh, that there was absolutely uh, everything natural that I could look at said that this man was murdered. And I wanted him to be vindicated to someone, to some official panel, which in this case was a civil jury. I wanted him to be uh, to be vindicated and exonerated of the suicide, vindicated for what had occurred to him. Did you feel that the jury was invested in your testimony? I can say, I, I, I'll say this. Um, I, I was able to sit in a courtroom and watch the jury and listen to other witnesses. And I wasn't, um, you know, you, you read body language uh, of witnesses, and I wasn't really getting much of a reading from them. I could not tell how in, how invested they were in the case at that point. 
uh, how they sit in their chairs. Um, are they leaning forward? Are they listening? Are they lounged backward? Are they bored? Um, are they looking down? Um, are they giving proper reaction to, to highly charged statements and sometimes emotional statements that witnesses are, are making? The one thing that I, I would say, I would have to answer that honestly and humbly. Yes, I think they were invested. And the reason why I say that is that um, I was allowed by the judge to stand up um, in front of the witness stand in order to uh, demonstrate, give it a demonstrative. And jurors want demonstrative. They want to be shown of what you're talking about. That's why they love videos. They love the scientific testimony. Um, they love the crime scene investigation. Uh, they they have less of a love of what people saw and what people thought. And um, they want to know who did what. And, and that's what they want to know. They want to know what happened. So I was able to give a demonstrative and I, I, I was really kind of caught up in what I was doing, but at one point I walked, looked at the jury and I noticed that almost all of their feet were flat on the floor as if they were about to stand up and they were leaning forward in their chairs. And I said, okay, they're listening. Uh, I've got their attention. Tom Shaw is an excellent attorney and he formulated a question in such a way um, that I would be able to start my testimony unhindered and just keep running through it. And I thought, I thought he was brilliant by doing that. He, and he, he talked to me before I got up there and he says, I'm going to ask you one question and you'll, you'll, you'll know when you hear the question, you just go. I'm like, just go. And so, and he did. And uh, it was a, it was a, it was a masterful legal achievement on his on his part i thought it really said spoke volumes of his his competency as an attorney and so yeah i think the jury was very uh vested you know they they want evidence they want you to show them how something happened don't tell me show me um and uh i've had the opportunity to do that and um and i th i think it was quite successful you know, I'm really, I'm really grateful to have served the attorney that I worked for, the the investigators that I worked with. I was really grateful to serve the the Cruz family, uh, but most of all, I think I was grateful to serve Jonathan Cruz. We don't always have to uh, meet someone in life to do what's right for them, um, and so I think that's a, a that's it's proven. You know, so time and time again. I've test when I've testified in homicide cases, um, uh, you know, you don't always testify for the most innocent of victims. And uh, I, I would have to say, I think in this case, I think Jonathan, Jonathan was probably the most innocent of victims that I ever got to speak, speak for. And uh, it's just not always uh, that, that it's a rare opportunity for a detective to, to have a completely innocent, you know, um, victim like that. And he was innocent. Jonathan Cruz was innocent and he, uh, he deserved to have a long life and that was stolen from him.
uh, he was murdered. And it's a, a, a sad, sad state of affairs of our criminal justice system uh, that with all of the layers that we have in the, in the, in the criminal justice system, from law enforcement, first, you know, from the first responders of law enforcement to the, the, uh, the uh, investigate, the leaders of police departments, uh, the district attorneys who also have a battery of investigators at their disposal. You have medical examiners who have their investigators at their disposal. You have laboratories and you have this much evidence and you can't even come up with an indictment for anything for Jonathan Cruz. That is, so there, really there's for our society, we're, we're, we end with the sad side of it is um, we, we don't, we hope to give Jonathan justice, but justice is very fleeting. It's not, it's not guaranteed. And I think that's what bothers me the most is, uh, in a in a career where you really believe um, that you're supposed to do justice, and then you see the system fail, even when individuals may want justice, the system that they are employed by fail them. In Jonathan Cruz's case, there is no excuse of why they said they were prodded by you the private investigator by the Cruz family over and over and over again. And instead of having some level of humility and going and doing the best job that they could, they chose to shut off communication with the victim's family. And that's just, that's, that's unconscionable. How can you do that? I, I I mean, I don't, I don't know if you have an answer. I'm willing to listen. I don't have an answer for that. I believe your upbringing and the history you have in law enforcement says a lot. And the fact that you have a family that did law enforcement and a wife that worked in the criminal justice system and brought justice to a lot of people is few and far between now. No one steps up or out to speak up for the victims. You're one in a million. Stay tuned for the gripping story of Jonathan Cruz's remarkable victory as we continue to bring you the evidence and let you decide. Without Warning Podcast, available now on all major podcast platforms.